the Journey Home Podcast. Welcome to the Journey Home Podcast. This is Matthew Starrett. I'm a psychotherapist and musician based in Surrey, UK. The premise for the Journey Home is to offer space for conversation with those sharing a lived experience of addiction, mental health, and a multitude of topics that resonate with the guest. The aim is to promote awareness of the dialogue content and serve as a pathway to therapeutic services. My guest this week is Dr. Chichi Obwaya. Chichi is a consultant psychiatrist in both private and NHS practice. I've wanted to feature a psychiatrist on the podcast since its inception, and Chichi was certainly at the top of my list of people to speak to. As with all of my guests, I'm so grateful to them for giving up their time to talk with me and hopefully give you, the listener, some helpful insight. Now, if you are a regular listener to this podcast, you may notice that the quality of my audio in the conversation with Chichi is not up to its usual standards. So I recorded the episode from Portobello Behavioral Health's London office, and unfortunately, I left a key bit of audio equipment at home, rendering my podcast microphone useless. Whoops. After an initial panic, I went on without my trusted mic and allowed myself to embrace what was, and I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation with Chi-Chi. A special shout out to the podcast's audio editor, Tom Worrell, for doing a bang-up job making my bare-bones audio recording sound passable. Cheers, Tom. One of the main things that stood out for me from my discussion with Chi-Chi was just how humanistic he is in his approach. I must admit, even though I had met Chi-Chi before, I did feel some anxiety going into our conversation. This probably wasn't helped by my audio issues. I was thinking somehow I wouldn't be smart enough to be in conversation with him. Perhaps that was something to do with him being a psychiatrist, doctor, who knows. But anyway, it was totally dispelled as soon as we started talking. Chi-Chi is so genuine, humble, open, down-to-earth, just such a nice guy. I loved hearing about how Chi-Chi was drawn to psychiatry from such a young age and how it was his father who inspired him to pursue his vision. For me, you can really hear the passion that Chi-Chi has for his work, and I imagine this comes through in abundance with all of his patients. Enjoy my conversation with Dr. Chi-Chi Oboya. I'm here with Dr. Chi-Chi Oboya. Chichi, thanks for joining me. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm used to asking the questions, so I'm a little bit nervous, but <laughs> I'll go with it. Oh, well, it's a real privilege to have you on. Um, talk about what drew you to the field of psychiatry. I get asked this question a lot now, um, and it's really interesting because I was with a colleague earlier today, and um, she asked the question, but gave her own response um, as to, well, I asked, why was she asking the question? And for her, although this is a GP who sees a lot of patients uh, with mental health difficulties, I guess it's really hard um, dealing with the, the sort of work that I tend to do. And for that person, when I asked her what she would rather do, um, surgery was her background and, um, that for me would be the very last thing I would want to do uh, as a junior doctor. So I, I, I trained uh, through medical school and you have to do your internship in different medical specialties. So you do some general medicine, general surgery. I was terrible uh, as, a, as a junior surgeon for the four months that I had to do it. I wasn't technically gifted in that way. Um, I 
don't find long operations interesting to watch or to be a part of. Psychiatry, for me, it is the most interesting job uh, I could see myself doing. I love the fact that you immerse yourself in the world of the patients, but not for selfish gain, but to, to journey with people, um, to try and help them and um, to think about their lives very holistically. So a lot's made of this term, the medical model, uh, mm. and it's used very pejoratively, but actually it is thinking about what factors biologically, psychologically, socially, spiritually have driven this person to the point at which they've needed to come into hospital or they've come to the outpatient clinic on this particular day in their lives and then trying to help them using that same fr framework. So a very broad brush approach to then helping people um, live more fulfilling lives. That for me is pretty cool. The short version I give people when uh, I haven't got time for uh, this sort of conversation is my dad's a psychiatrist. Uh, okay. And um, that was therefore something that was very normal for me to be around. And I think actually it's quite an important point because um, psychiatrists are often, I think, unfairly uh, labelled as being quite eccentric individuals. My dad is the most regular, relaxed person. Uh, and so I didn't grow up around this uh, caricature of a, of what many people think a psychiatrist is supposed to look like. It was just my dad and this is what he happened to do. So, um, yeah, that just piqued my interest from a young age. Very cool. And to go back to something you said, which really stood out and I really resonated with that sense of looking at everything rather than just the one part because so much can be missed and I, I can certainly when I was hearing you speak about perhaps you know the surgery or anything almost like looking at a limb but forgetting there's all these other parts that may have contributed actually to that person who is injured you know and that can sometimes get missed which I recognize is is quite difficult because there's so many different parts within us and you touched upon this spirituality, intergenerational trauma, all these different things. How do you arrive, you know, with all that information? Because I, I'm aware it can sometimes be quite a lot, potentially. Actually, opening that door is great, but sometimes there is a lot there. And actually, how do you kind of anchor in the moment with, with patients, with people? Yeah, so I think we're trained to think holistically. However, as human beings, mm. you can uh draw quite a narrow lens um and so we run the risk of uh becoming very focused but i think it's important to go back to understanding what our function is so there are all these interesting things going on in the lives of our patients but my role isn't to indulge my role isn't just to gather information for information's sake like any other medical doctor we are trained to um, take detailed histories to establish a diagnosis. The diagnosis is there to give us a framework for then taking forward a management plan, and that management plan should be evidence-based. So I think by just sticking to my knitting and not getting too sucked into maybe the interesting and colourful aspects of what's going on, I think helps to keep me grounded and focused. Yeah, oh, I really hear that. And it brings me on to something I wanted to ask you, which is how, how do you navigate uh, things like comorbidity? 
So I'm aware areas such as addiction and ADHD can often overlap with things like depression, anxiety, OCD, and more. And in a way, it, that feels like a, a place to go from what you just said, you know, when there is, you know, comorbidity. How do you navigate that? Personally, trying to do it in a methodical uh, manner. So it might be the case, and let's be realistic, not everyone has comorbidity. So mm. There are situations that are much more straightforward. And therefore, when there's comorbidity present, it does stand out. And fairly early in a conversation, I'll just take a step back and think, okay, there's quite a lot going on here. And what I've learned over time is just to relax in that moment, because obviously we don't have endless time with any given patient. But what I, what I understand in that moment is I'm not going to get everything today. Right. This is going to be a, a process. Um, one of my um, consultants when I was a junior doctor used to tell me that uh, diagnosis is at the point of exit, not entry sometimes. The more times we interact with a patient, the more information we've gathered, the better able we are to comment on what's actually going on. Sometimes it's straightforward and you can very quickly establish what the pathology is. Other times it changes. And I think this is one of the, the things we have to accept about psychiatry. We don't have, uh, unlike our surgical colleagues, we don't have that x-ray or blood test that can tell us definitively this is what's going on objectively. And 10 doctors would agree that leg is broken, 10 out of 10. Whereas one psychiatrist might say, well, this fits the pattern of depression. Another might call it what we refer to as an adjustment disorder, where there have been external stresses that lead to distress that falls below the, the, the threshold for depression. And a third might conceptualize it as an anxiety disorder. And even one psychiatrist might move from one to another diagnosis to a third uh, yeah. as time goes on, because more information comes to light, because we get a better understanding of the clinical presentation uh, as time goes on. Sitting with diagnostic ambiguity is one thing, but where there's comorbidity, what one might do is say, well, let me focus on X first mm -hmm. and know about why it's there in the background, but I'm going to have to come back to that. Yeah, it's really interesting. The, the way you were speaking there, it, it, there is a holistic and person-centered element there that I'm really hearing that I recognize can sometimes they can feel like a divide between certain schools, whether it's medical or non-medical or holistic, or but something around taking a person as a whole, recognizing your own humanity and the time you have, but also something which I guess links to therapy in some ways, which is actually going where the person needs to go first and not making it really overwhelmed. So for example, if someone might be struggling with addiction, it's not wise to unearth the trauma that's underneath that often until that person can get clean, sober, stabilize. And I get that that came up for me a bit when you were speaking there, some of those parallels that maybe can be drawn. Yeah, re really interesting, actually. It's yeah. reaching a point collectively. So mm. there's a danger that um if everything's driven by patient in front of me, maybe there are really key things that are going to be blind spots for me, which actually would change the way I'm going to think about the problem. If it's all driven by me, um, 
that might cause the patient to shut down. And actually there's some really important things. So there may be some trauma and we need to acknowledge it. And maybe we're not gonna discuss it in depth, but if I don't know about it because yeah. I've had my own agenda, then I'm missing something that's actually impacting. Uh, and I'm gonna make probably erroneous recommendations in terms of what type of therapy that person needs. Yeah. So it is a it is about collaborating, just getting to a point that's mutually acceptable. So it sometimes sound like sounds like a bit of a cliche, but the goal is to formulate that plan together. Because ultimately, if I'm recommending certain treatment, unless someone is so unwell, so for example, presenting with a very frank psychotic illness mm. and they lack capacity to make decisions about their care. Other than that situation, it's going to be up to the individual to take my recommendations mm. and maybe accept them, maybe not. They might go and do their bit of research. They may have come in with an idea of what they think is the right thing. So uh, we talk about informed consent, and that's what it means, that we are giving people the information they need to make the right decision. So you, you make a good point about I think particularly that situation where trauma may be the underlying phenomenon, uh, one has to be sensitive about the timing at which that is addressed. And also because I'm not the person that's going to ultimately deliver the therapy and I would refer someone on, how necessary is it for me to go into massive detail or do I just need to have um, a certain degree of understanding as to what's going on? Because if I'm not delivering the therapy, it might be re-traumatizing for that person to talk about it without yeah. there being any therapeutic intervention to go alongside it. So there is a lot that we have to consider. Um, yeah. yeah, a lot of collaboration as well, I hear, between you and the patient, but also then potentially what the treatment plan might be. But the something I was just thinking of there, and I, I wonder if you've experienced this, but that often people can come into therapy often wounded, wanting to change, maybe looking for an answer. And often as therapists, there can be that go-to place, which is a lot of therapists aren't doctors. So it immediately gets it out that way, gets it out of the, get, gets it out of the, the way, I guess. But how do you, because I'm imagining, I, I make up that you will have seen a lot of people who are feeling pretty desperate and want to feel better, like immediately, and are actually quite in quite a difficult place. And, and I wonder how, how is that to navigate, you know, given what you've just said? So I think my role is to um, help people navigate the journey. And again, the starting point is a diagnosis. So if I'm able to establish a condition, which isn't always the case, not everyone presents in that textbook manner, there may be multiple things going on, which is where it's also important to try and break things down for each individual diagnosis that's made. But then I have to lay out what the roadmap looks like. And whether we're talking about medication or therapy, of course, there's no guarantee that any treatment works. Now, there are some conditions I treat which have a very high probability of being successful. So my subspecialty is ADHD, which is a hot topic. Yeah. The demand is sky high at the moment. Yeah. What we do know is that, uh, and I always tell this to my patients when I've made the diagnosis, because I think it's important for them to know, 80% of people diagnosed with that condition, as long as we've established that in a robust fashion, 
will actually respond to the first-line treatment, which is stimulant medication. That's a really, really high number. Then if you look across psychiatry at the other end of the scale, um, you have a condition like dementia, where there is no cure. There are now some treatments, uh, and there have been false dawns in the past, that might slow down disease progression. But you can see then that with those two extremes, those are two very different conversations. Yeah. So it's about managing people's expectations about what is likely to happen, what has happened in my experience of treating other patients, um, but not offering false guarantees on the one hand, but mm. giving a sense of hope. There, there was a colleague of mine, and I have to say this is actually when I was coming up towards becoming a consultant and not during all those years that I trained. And he actually said something that I hadn't heard very often, which is why it stood out for me. And um, he had a very busy practice. He sadly passed away a few years ago. And the thing that he said is, you're going to get better. He didn't say that to every patient, um, but it was remarkable to hear it. And it seems so simple, but what he was instilling was a sense of hope based on his vast experience. Yeah. And when you have that degree of mileage, you know, you're not going to get it right 100% of the time, but generally speaking, it's important to lead, to get that person who may have spent hours uh, thinking about that appointment, might have been their first contact with a mental health professional. It can be really daunting. They're not going to absorb all of the information about the pharmacology of the different drugs we're prescribing, but they will remember, and I know from experience, they will remember that the one thing he said to me was, this is going to get better. And that might be the only thing they need to hold on to because everything seems so bleak. But actually, if you can just, even if they don't fully believe it, get them to remember that one thing, it, it can help them to just persevere through more difficult times. Yeah, really powerful. And again, something that's often not spoken about but just that, you know, that simplicity in that. And certainly, I guess, coming from a psychotherapeutic lens, there's so many different theories and so many different schools, and there'll probably be a hundred more in 20 years. And that's really great. But sometimes just that relational meeting, being heard before any, you know, whatever the path is, just actually being seen by another person and just being heard. And it sounds like it's quite a similar experience in some ways, just that validation. It's a relationship business. I, I talked about my father and how, how yes. normal he, he was and remains. And I'd like to think I'm in the, a similar category. I'm not an eccentric person, but there are different styles of psychiatrists, um, different personalities. And we bring that, those aspects of our personality uh, to our clinical work. Mm. But for me, it is about trying to strip away the clever stuff. So yes, I, I read my research papers and I know what the latest treatments are and that's all very good. But actually for me, it's that awareness of the journey that someone might have been on, uh, the trepidation in the waiting room. I, I love um, the fact that we can see patients remotely, but nothing quite is a substitute for greeting a patient in the reception area, sitting down, and as I've had to do in recent weeks, I can think of a couple of patients where I've said to them, just relax mm. because they're nervous. Mm. Um, 
they're, they're daunted by the prospect because it's the first time they'd seen somebody like me. Yeah. So for me, sticking to the basics, instilling some hope, giving people clarity, communicating in very simple language, that's sort of the, the foundation. Really cool. And you, you mentioned your dad a couple of times. I wonder if we could almost backtrack a bit. What, what do you remember about you know, seeing your dad, knowing he was a psychiatrist? And do you remember when that moment was that you thought, this is pretty cool. My dad's pretty cool. There's something about this that I quite like. Do you remember when that was, where you were, what was happening for you at the time? No. And the strange thing is, I don't really remember a time where I didn't want to be a doctor. I knew from a very young age, actually, that that's what I wanted to do. Mm. I was quite sporty as a child. And what I do remember is the Seoul Olympics, mm. 1988. Um, and I was watching the TV, there was a rower, I can't remember who it was, but he was a doctor. And um, actually, it was probably one of my first experiences of, of anxiety. And I turned to my parents who were in the living room. And I said, mum and dad, is it possible to be both a doctor and a professional sports person? Because mm. I knew I wanted to be a doctor, but I also knew that I love sports. Mm. And the anxiety was, am I going to have to let go of one of these dreams? Mm. The strange thing is I didn't, I didn't know that much about what his work actually entailed. So there'd be times where um, he picked me up at school and I had to follow him to work because he was still doing a bit of the paperwork. It was just, I, I think it really was an osmosis process where I didn't even think twice about it. But what I was able to do the summer before I went to medical school, I actually worked as a healthcare assistant in a mental health hospital that he was working in. And that was where within a couple of days, I just knew that, yeah, unless I find something that does what this thing's doing for me, that ability to immerse myself in other people's world and seeing really interesting pathology. I guess in the same way that the surgeons, they just love operating. Whereas for me, I'm looking at the clock and thinking, this is boring. When's it going to end? Being with people, listening to their life story, and then somehow that translating to something that's going to make a big impact and help them to get better, to alleviate their symptoms. Yeah. I really loved it. So that was the moment that I knew it wasn't just about being a doctor, but specifically a psychiatrist. Jumping forward again, you you highlighted about ADHD being a pretty hot topic at the moment. Um, uh, it's come up in some episodes of the podcast, and I feel like I'd love to get your your thoughts and expertise. You know, given I've, I'm speaking with you today. What is going on out there? What, why is it a hot topic? What's happening? What's changing? Yeah. So I think the first thing to acknowledge is that it definitely is. Uh, the demand is going up. Uh, I work in the NHS and in private practice. And in both uh, areas, the demand year on year has gone up massively. And I put that down to greater awareness. Mm -hmm. um, if we compare ourselves to the US, um, I think uh without wishing to generalize too much it is it is a generalization mm. uh, i think it's overdiagnosed there um and so there's a range of between three and seven percent um 
percentage of the population, depending on um, which research study you look at. Mm. Pretty high proportions. Um, my own feeling is that it's probably closer to the 3% than it is 7 So it's possibly overdiagnosed um, in the US um, because some of those symptoms, I, I think this is the challenge with a lot of mental health conditions. The symptoms are things that we can all experience. So if you look at personality disorders, that used to be a really hot topic, not so much now. And if you look at the diagnostic manuals that we use as psychiatrists, spend a few minutes reading those, you're probably going to think that you've got a personality disorder. Mm. But we know that as clinicians, there are particular patterns that we look for in terms of the onset, um, the pervasive nature of those symptoms, and the extent to which they actually cause major lasting problems in interpersonal relationships and one's relationship with oneself. So rather than just looking at the page and thinking, well, I do that, that, and that, there's, there's a particular pattern. So I guess one of the questions about ADHD is, is that the case? Um, because it's a it, it's a condition that has an onset in childhood. So if children are being a bit boisterous and lacking boundaries, to what extent is that normal versus moving into something a bit more profound? And I think the more the most contentious diagnostic criterion, it's not the presence of the symptoms, it's the extent to which they cause impairment in day-to-day activities. Right. So we look for them being present in different settings. So school home, university, the workplace, interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. But awareness has grown. Social media clearly has been part of that. And I have to say from a, a clinician's perspective, I don't feel that it's inappropriate. Mm-hmm. When I do an assessment, not only am I taking a history from the patient, I'll try and get objective information, usually from a parent who can speak to their childhood experiences and from school reports. And often if you go through the school reports, you do see the behaviours there yeah. when you make a diagnosis, which certainly isn't all the time. I think what's happened is that the awareness is uncovering previously undiagnosed ADHD as opposed to um, clinicians being lazy or too yeah. quick to make the diagnosis. No, I really hear that makes a lot of sense. and. Following on from that, do you foresee other things coming up like that? So, for example, there's a lot more awareness around certain areas like like trauma and things. And actually, it could be depending on how you, you know, it can be a subjective experience. You know, I remember hearing a, a psychiatrist once say, you know, if you look up the word trauma, it means injury. How many people have had an injury? And yeah. I, I was quite that resonated quite a lot because I think there can be that sense of which might link in with the with the H of the ADHD it's got to be this or it's nothing. Whereas actually there are some subtle nuances, but people can get missed. And I wonder if you, maybe you are seeing that at the moment, but do you think anything like that will happen with other areas that will hopefully, you know, help people? I'd say trauma's one. Uh, The other one that comes to mind is, um, and this is not a new thing, anxiety. So anxiety is a phenomenon. It's a normal phenomenon. Um, but of course, as doctors, we do sometimes diagnose people as having anxiety disorders. So the key question is, what's the cutoff? Mm. Where does anxiety become pathological? And over the years, psychiatrists have not really agreed about that. There are some psychiatrists who will very rarely diagnose anxiety disorders because 
And I'm thinking more of the generalized anxiety that we see as opposed to specific conditions like PTSD. So that's an anxiety disorder that is very much trauma driven. And OCD is a very specific type of anxiety disorder. But some psychiatrists would say that actually it's not a condition in itself. And these are just manifestations of, of angst. And maybe that's something which can be thought about at a macro level as well. So the thing with trauma is that, uh, like anxiety, it's a phenomenon, it's not a diagnosis. And it can lead to, um, firstly, no response, because some people experience trauma, they process it, and it doesn't really leave a lasting mark. And then it can lead to a range of mental health conditions. We tend to think about trauma equating to the PTSD, but that's not really the case. Some people become depressed after a traumatic event. The, the issue again there is um, what's the cutoff? How, how bad does the trauma have to be uh, for it to be significant? Mm. And I think the definitions of trauma, which can be quite varied, are helpful because um, there's a subjective um, experience that occurs, which means that if you and I go through the same experience, maybe you deem it to be traumatic and I don't. Uh, and that's allowed and that's valid. But maybe one of the downsides of having a very broad definition, so similar to the one you described, um, the one I've heard is uh, more recently uh, and used quite widely is that it's any experience that isn't validating. Well, well what does that mean? Does that mean that if um, someone makes me feel bad at the bus stop, does that how is that, that the same category as uh, as some catastrophic life change? So yeah, we've got to be careful uh, with where we're going uh, with that. Um, mm. But interestingly. Um, it does affect people in different ways. So something I might deem to be not very significant uh, or nebulous um, in terms of it really causing uh, marked and pervasive pathology might do it for another individual. It's really interesting listening to you speak, and I guess it, it brings to mind that meeting in the room, you know, almost the, the self-diagnosis or the Instagram diagnosis, that there's a lot of facts out there, but it can actually potentially be of detriment to someone you know and, and that brings up for me that notion of you know where, where do you place things like labels are they always helpful can they sometimes be detrimental as in you know i think of some conditions well like with anything in life someone validation can mean i feel really empowered i'm off i'm going to do my thing this is great whereas for another it could mean i've got an excuse to not do anything and it's it's a tricky one in some ways i guess and I, i'm aware there is no right or wrong answer, but certainly was something I wanted to get your thoughts on, given we are very lucky to have a lot more awareness and, and live in a society where it's it's much more tolerated than it was. I mean, I guess, that, you know, that there can still always be work to be done, but how do we navigate that? Actually, what might work for some could actually cause harm in some ways, potentially to another person and just that fine balance. So I personally take the view that um, having established diagnostic categories is a helpful thing. Um, it's helpful for the individual, um, ultimately because um, wherever possible, we're gonna go with evidence-based treatment. So 
rather than me just giving you an antidepressant because you said you feel low, if I think you've actually got depression, there are studies, um, it's well established, I know that in itself is a contentious issue, um, but my view is very clear that the evidence base is pretty overwhelming that yeah. antidepressants can be effective if you've got depression. So unless we come to a consensus around where the cutoff is, then I think we run into the risk of, actually, I'm just having a bit of a rough time. Oh, well, why don't you just take some antidepressants? And that's the slippery slope yeah. uh, we can head into. And I feel really sorry for, for GPs because they don't have the amount of time that we have as specialists oh. to really establish the difference between those two states. And there's an inherent pressure, You've got 10 minutes, the patient's there, then maybe even coming in stating that they think they need antidepressants, but do they have sufficient time uh, to really get to that point where they're, they're prescribing with confidence? Language also helps us to communicate with other healthcare professionals. So if I'm seeing someone that's new in the country, new to the area, and they've got previous letters, and I see what the diagnosis and the formulation has been with another colleague, it helps me to understand, right, this is what was going on. And without that, um, it's a lot harder. So, so what are they actually saying? Is this person depressed? Are they just a bit upset? How severe are these symptoms? Mm. So I think there are massive upsides um, to having diagnostic categories. Having said that, um, I think sometimes, um, certainly speaking from a UK perspective, there are yeah. challenges that this can present. Uh, within the NHS, a lot of services have moved towards trying to offer services based around specific diagnostic groups. So communicating as professionals is also enhanced uh, when there's clarity around the diagnosis. If I'm seeing a patient that's moved into the country or the area um, and has maybe seen another psychiatrist elsewhere, it's really helpful for me to know this is the specific diagnostic label that was attributed to the symptoms. So okay. rather than it being vague and it's all a bit unclear and what was the rationale for giving person a particular form of therapy, well, I know that was to treat PTSD. So that's probably a good example that mm. lots of people experience trauma, but did that actually manifest as PTSD symptoms? Yeah. And it might be that there's another treatment if if they experienced something that's a bit more nebulous but if it's ptsd there are specific therapies that have been developed to treat those symptoms mm. and therefore i'm going to know maybe something hasn't hasn't quite worked if we've given someone that evidence-based treatment maybe they need to try a different style of therapy or see a different therapist but we know that because the evidence base has been developed around that diagnosis. Yeah. Uh, but there are some downsides. And in the in this country, we've moved increasingly to trying to develop specialist services around yeah. diagnostic groups. And going back to your earlier point about comorbidity, mm. it works well when we're dealing with straightforward diagnoses. But I, I mentioned that we have to deal with diagnostic ambiguity and the overlap. Uh, of symptoms that may occur across different diagnoses and the fact that diagnoses might be fluid 
as we develop more knowledge. And so if we have a service, and I've seen this happen, where we're just trying to treat someone's mood disorder, but actually they do have significant difficulties associated with the personality traits, the services aren't necessarily well set up to support both ends. Yeah. They probably were when I was training, sorry to sound a bit nostalgic about this, um, but we've we've tried to become more sophisticated, and I think that has come at a cost right. uh, in terms of being able to sit with uncertainty. Yeah, it sounds like a really interesting but also difficult path in many ways. Um, and you know, we've spoken about a lot of topics here, and, and I find myself wanting to kind of know how do you detach from this? You know, actually, it sounds like you know you're clearly very passionate. You know, you it really means something to you and you really care. But I, I recognize sometimes that can be difficult to detach from when, when stuff can feel pretty heavy. It's been a difficult day and certainly not being a psychiatrist, I can't imagine how tough that can be. How do you leave it in the office or leave it on the, you know, leave it outside? <laughs> yeah, talk about that. I think everyone's got their own mechanisms. Um, I did talk about my passion for, for sports and yeah. As I'm getting on in the years, uh, yeah, my aptitude is going down, but the need actually um, to engage in, in sporting activities to clear my head uh, is probably going up. Um, I think one of the things I was able to do quite instinctively uh, was to switch off. And um, my wife often remarks on it because um, with a family, uh, I might be working from home on a particular day and then there's a need to be emotionally present. So she's she's often remarked at how quickly that can happen. Mm-hmm. And I guess in the same way that um, the thought of suturing up a, a wound at the end of an operation would fill me with dread, um, and this doesn't, it's just something that comes naturally to me. Mm-hmm. Whereas for the surgeon, they can just do those sutures and pretty much do it with their eyes closed. It's just something that for me, I've always understood is really necessary. And I guess I, I try to be very boundaried. Mm-hmm. And it talks about different styles, um, suiting different patients. That may not work for everyone. Um, I've, I've worked under colleagues who've been rather unboundaried. And I don't mean that as a criticism. It's just yeah. the staff they adopted. And for me, I think that comes at a cost. Sure. The way I approach it is that I'm trying to role model good behaviours for my patients. So if I'm dealing with someone who's a workaholic and they're burning out, I don't think it makes sense for me to adopt those sorts of behaviours. So I can't be available all the time. No. Um, and I think there was a generation of doctors who were a bit more inclined to work that way. Um, but what I, what I try and tell people is you never want to be dependent on one person. So it's about thinking of the system. So, um, the GP, myself as a psychiatrist, maybe a psychologist or therapist, we work as a team. And so what happens when one person goes on annual leave, you don't want things to, to come crashing down. And that's why you need to have a team around you. So. Being boundaried helps, but having um, some hobbies outside of work uh, and, a, and a family also help massively. 
really hear that. And thanks for sharing that. Really, really useful. And also, you know, really courageous in many ways, you know, to be able to, because I can hear like a, a real compassion for yourself. And part of compassion can often be putting boundaries in and saying. Yeah, the, the thing I wanted to add is that by doing that, mm. I can then actually be more useful. Um, I've I've been there uh, when I when I started in private practice. Um, my colleague used to lend me his room on a couple of afternoons. So one of the afternoons was a Friday, and then my clinic would run into the evening. And mm. my energy levels on a Friday evening were not the same as they were on a Monday morning. It's, no. it's pretty simple. Yeah. And so I always want to be um, because I understand the importance of that interaction for patients. I met some of my patients I see once a year, once every few years. So I want that time with them that they're getting the best of me or close to the best because I'm human. I can't operate at a hundred percent all the time, but I want them to be close to my best. Yeah. Um, and certainly good enough a hundred percent of the time, more than good enough. Um, I can't do that if I'm working seven days a week. So I don't apologize for the approach that I take, but there are different approaches that suit different people. No, I, I hear that, but I, I really like that. It's sort of drawing on your own wisdom and knowing what's helpful and what's not um, for you, but also how that would impact on your patients. And I think that's really, really important. I came across an article on the Royal College of Psychiatrists website on racism and mental health, and it led me to reflecting on the wide-ranging inequalities for people from Black, Asian, and minority ethnic backgrounds, and their increasing likelihood of being disadvantaged across all aspects of society compared to those from other backgrounds. And I wondered if you could talk about your experience of this. Um, well, twofold. Actually, just looking at the um, research, I have to say that when I was a junior doctor, uh, and in fact a medical student, we learned about certain conditions having a higher prevalence amongst uh, ethnic minority groups and not just in the uk um it's it's a global phenomenon yeah. the best example of this was psychosis and there was a famous study in in south london known as the camberwell study which looked at rates of psychosis uh, and it would compare black population in south london compared to that population in west africa for example and also looking at um brazil where there's a massive uh, japanese population uh, and irish people also in london compared to irish people in ireland yeah in, in summary higher rates of psychosis amongst migrant populations and the idea being that um, those populations were um, marginalized and that was impacting so you talk about um the impact of trauma we think about psychosis and schizophrenia being the main condition there being very much a neurodevelopmental disorder, so to do with the way in which the brain develops and strongly biological, actually there is some evidence that trauma plays a part. Um, and so the extent to which populations are marginalized within society um, probably has some impact. However, what I've learned over the years is that it does happen across the board. So pretty much every condition you can think of, there are higher rates uh amongst um black and minority ethnic groups so that's at the population level on a personal level so it's a harder one to 
to answer. I think you'll get different responses from different people working within mental health. One of the the really positive aspects is that um, there's a lot of diversity within psychiatry, and that's something I saw as a junior doctor. I've seen it with my father uh, yeah. and his generation and many of his friends from from diverse backgrounds. One of the things that is in common with other specialties um, is that when you then get into senior management positions, uh, there was a, a famous paper called The Snowy White Peaks of the NHS, uh, and there is a, an established glass ceiling, um, which has been broken down to varying degrees, mm. um, but it's still there. Um, a lot of, um, certainly working in London, a lot of mental health nurses uh, that one would interact with uh, come from diverse backgrounds. Um, but then you'll see other examples where um, it is still problematic. So thinking more about um, access to psychological therapy yeah. Um, particularly for black patients, the term that was often used um, in in psychodynamic psychotherapy, because there are always going to be cutoffs um, for any service. You can't see everyone that's referred, but that this patient wasn't psychologically minded, and it, it felt a bit as though that was basically a form of uh, intellectualism. Um, and you know, if you had a, a working a working class black single mother. You know, they're not psychologically minded. They're not going to be the sort of person you can indulge in in long-term psychotherapy. So I think that's an issue. And if you speak to patients, I'm always fascinating when people remark on me as a as a black psychiatrist because I know loads of them. Yeah. There are lots and lots of us, but there still seems to be this perception that there aren't many of us around. And so I think for some families, um, it's really hard navigating a system where they feel that maybe mm. they can't identify with the psychiatrist that they're seeing, but it's a double-edged sword because you might identify with patients and yes, there are certain experiences you, you may have a somewhat better understanding of, but there's also a danger sometimes that you are particularly for thinking about psychosis, which is characterized by very paranoid thinking. That you're seen as part of that system, that mm -hmm. you're you're yeah. the uncle Tom, you're colluding actually against that person. So it can it can go both ways, I would say. Yeah. So actually, there's a lot of stuff that maybe people aren't realizing, but it can it can be pretty complex in, in many areas. And actually, you know, I really hear that in, in what you were saying there. Um, but I really value value you sharing your experience um Chichi I'm aware we're, we're coming towards the end there's, there's a couple of things I just wanted to ask you if that's okay one thing I was really reflecting on because it's something I recognize can be it can be a real struggle for people and I'm sure you know you know this very well I'm sure but that when people are really wounded really struggling the evidence after seeing someone like yourself could be look medication would really help you know if you're looking at it as a whole there's these things that happened but much like we have feet we've also got a brain and a nervous system and it, there's all these different parts if someone is really resistant to medication for reasons that may come out in long-term psychotherapy may not may come out in your your assessment of them and for anyone listening to this who may have been diagnosed with a condition recently or in the past or is just 
they're struggling with it. What would you say to them around, you know, taking medication? As a comment, I'd say that there may be reasons why um, someone's got very strong beliefs. And if it's because they've had a, a bad experience, maybe that's um, fostered a sense of mistrust in them, that I'm sorry that they had a bad experience. But I'd always encourage them to recognize that um, we're really well resourced in this country. Um, I come from, I'm of Nigerian origin, and, and over there, the, the ratio of psychiatrists to, to patients is absolutely huge. There's an absolute dearth of psychiatrists, and yet there is the demand. Mm. So we're blessed with lots of professionals. I'd always encourage people to, to keep going and to try someone else um, because um, we do think holistically as doctors. We're not just there to um, prescribe and do nothing else. But the, the fact of the matter is that for a lot of the conditions we see, medication does have a role and it can be a game changer. It can really help people to get back on their feet. And that may sit alongside therapy. Some people don't engage well in therapy. And so medication becomes even more important Yeah, yeah. in those instances. So um, I just, I, I'd encourage people to ask questions where questions need to be asked. But of course, we said it's a relationship business and relationships require trust. So if that trust needs to be rebuilt, then that's a journey that's worth going on. That's really, really wise, wise words. And thank you for sharing that. We've spoken quite a lot about, you know, I've heard you saying about evidence-based and science and all this kind of stuff. Something I wanted to ask you, and I asked some of my guests this, what role does spirituality have in your life? What does it mean to you? A big one for me personally. Um, I think as psychiatrists, like other human beings, we, we operate across a range. Um, and for some people that won't be important. Um, for me, it's an important motivating factor as to why I do what I do. What I would say, however, is that my approach isn't biased by it. So we're actually, we are trained to think holistically. So I'd again encourage patients who maybe have a very strong sense of spirituality that might be um, aligned with a particular religious belief. You don't have to see someone of that same belief system. Actually, the, the beauty of the work that we do comes in the variety of human nature and exploring our differences and, and being curious. We're yeah. often curious when we see something that maybe we're not so familiar with. As psychiatrists, we should incorporate it. We should encourage patients to embrace the spiritual aspects of their personality and of recovery, whatever that's going to mean for an individual and without bias. So mm. I think it's important. And I think particularly in, in the UK where society tends to be quite conservative with a small C and shy about talking about spirituality, we sometimes miss out on it because we don't want to offend mm. or we think it's awkward to go there, but actually it's really important for patients. Yeah. And that, you know, listening to you there, a sense of taking a dogmatic approach in medicine or any field is often not helpful, but that can sometimes be people's experience of religion or spirituality. But actually, you know, I think the word that came up, and I think you may have said this, but that wholeness, 
really important. On that note, an important thing to state would be my role as a psychiatrist isn't to proselytize. No. It's really important to understand that people coming to us as doctors, as therapists, psychologists are vulnerable. So it's not about imparting our belief system on any individual. We bring who we are. And so we will pick up on certain things and we might explore things because we have a knowledge of certain um, elements of spirituality in, in this case or other aspects of their, yeah. their clinical presentation. Um, but I think it's important to recognize that vulnerability and that's where things can also go wrong if we blur those boundaries. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's important to understand for us as healthcare professionals what hat we're wearing when we're seeing our patients in the room. Totally. I really value you sharing that as well because I think there can be a, an unconscious view of how professionals often are, maybe having the answer, being the guru. And actually that can so often that would be detrimental. And it's it's really amazing to to hear you you share that. And so thank you. Um before I let you go, something I do with all my guests is some word associations. So I quite like this as I do like a bit of Carl Jung, but it's become quite an interesting thing on the podcast because everybody that's kind of the cool thing about it. Everybody responds to words in a different way. We've spoken about sub subjectivity and all that stuff. But um, if it feels okay, could I throw a few words at you and see what comes up? Yeah, let, let's see if anything interesting comes up. Now, you got me nervous now. I'm out of my comfort zone. Let's go for it. Okay, right. Let's do this. So, voyage. Uncertainty. To argue. Healthy. Money. It's a good one complex green the color green relaxation contented simple and finally family centerpiece nice how did you find that fun i wish i could do it again yeah it's really cool i was kind of looking for something that was you know i could tag on and thinking yeah. wasn't quite sure where it would go but it's been really fascinating hearing yeah, it, it does. I think it reveals something. And I'm sure as you see it uh, with multiple guests, mm. you get a sense, a bit more of a sense of values. And Yeah, amazing. Well, Chi-Chi, thank you so much. It's been a, an honor and a privilege to have, have you on the show um, and for you to you know, impart what you did. Um, I really value it and I'm sure the listeners will also. So thank you so much for coming on and have the rest of a great day. It was a real pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much again to Chi-Chi for coming on and speaking with me. It was such a fun episode to record. I certainly felt like I learned loads. At one point, I wanted to have my notebook so I could just keep some notes, but I just allowed myself to stay present, and it was really great that I did because it was a really special experience. I hope you got something out of it, and perhaps you're looking for a psychiatrist or wanted to learn more about what psychiatrists do. Uh, certainly for me, Chi Chi really amazingly summarized this in quite a short period of time, relatively speaking. If you're interested in learning more about Chi Chi and his private practice, I'll include a link to his website in the episode description below. The Journey Home was brought to you in conjunction with Portobello Behavioral Health. Music and production by Matthew Starrett, edited by Tom Worrell. 
You've been listening to the Journey Home podcast.